I think for a long time the defending player has had uh, the power because it was easier for them to defend than it is to beat the player. That is around, it, that's about to switch, not on all positions, but we're getting there and then this will get really exciting. When, when you instruct the players, you tell them what to do, you can probably have results on, sh on short-term basis, but you won't have the players develop uh, on their own. When you're a real coach, you probably don't just put up the drill and say play, then you're just a facilitator. So when you start coaching, that's when you help the players to, to be better and you tell them what to work on, what's this drill about. So that's, there's a difference between the instructor telling them what to do, um, the facilitator just to put up the drill and then let them explore, and then the coach is actually helping the players to develop. And that's long-term if you ask me. Yeah, I, I still think it's important to say, of course, every time you walk on that pitch, you walk in there to win the game, of course. We want results, we want to win the game, but it's the, the process getting there um, that we need to agree on when we talk about development in, in kids and youth soccer. Look into their uh, mentality to see are they brave and when they face adversity or uh, mistakes in the game, how do they cope with that? Do, do they still try afterwards? Um, do they still um, communicate with their, um, their teammates? Um, how do they um, stay in the game when things are tough? But of course, we also, it's not like adversity all the time would just produce the best player. They have to feel good as well. So make sure you don't just put them up to play with the higher and the better players all the time. So that a mix of that would be really good. So like the dual career and all this stuff is really important for us also to make sure that uh, the pressure is right on the players, not too much, but still we have to push them as well. So that balance is really important. Uh, we need to keep all our players in the game, in the best environments as long as possible. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating insight. And again, for aspiring coaches, people working in the industry, you're listening, people working with young players, who dream of becoming professional, playing for youth national teams, wherever they are in the world, you know, it's something that has to be considered. You have to look at it. And again, you know, I'm not talking about everybody. I'm not saying that everybody out there coaching is, is getting it wrong or not doing it right. That's not, that's not what we're here for. We're just shining a light on perhaps the extreme end of the spectrum by talking to youth international coaches like yourself and by talking about perhaps the other end of the spectrum where people are robbing players of the power of speculation. We're trying to have a debate around those parameters. So, yes, we definitely want to. We want it, it. This is sometimes hard. We want them to succeed in what they're doing, but we also want it to be game-like. So we can do that movement, but if there's no pressure on, then we'll have a lot of successive actions, but it won't look like the the final game. So that balance is hard, and it's really hard when you plan the session and you go out. Would you agree, and are you seeing the same kind of things across Europe in terms of where the game is going on the field? Yes, definitely. And, and that's what's making the coaching job even more interesting right now, because now, now it's not about simple things like having a bigger player or one that is really good individually. Now you have to set up the whole team to succeed. Let's say in Denmark, I think we still need to 
get used to the patience we can have with the ball because it's we have been rushed for many years because we didn't know for how long we could keep the ball in possession so while when we got up there we could see the goal we really went to the goal really quick and we don't have to do that anymore so now the tactics can come in and the game can be even more exciting to watch and to coach definitely as well we have like our professional lives but also our private lives and if i just keep as a human being to focus on my career at some time if if that volume up and down isn't right i won't be in the game for long term i will instead of just um taking a smaller job in soccer i'll just quit soccer and that that won't make it easy for me to come back so um i think it's important to recognize that our lives are in periods so some periods are some things are more important than others but stay in the game stay in the game that's the most important thing what your insight and experience is going to do for other people is give them the grace and the ability to, to to learn and to be patient with themselves and perhaps not be so uh, hard on themselves at times especially on times of tough but to wrap up this this kind of section on the on the parenting of the coaching young people the best way i've ever heard it described and i love this I want to share this with people is as a parent you you never win but you sometimes draw you mostly lose but in, in essence you just get up to play again and that's the challenge you just get up every day to play again and that that helped me in my life and i hope it helps um some people out there as well that's an amazing sentence yeah Welcome to this episode of the Pro Player Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Anya Heiner Moller. Anya is a UEFA Pro Licensed Coach. She's currently the Denmark Under-19s Women's Head Coach. She has a fantastic background working as an instructor for the Danish Football Association. Really, really interested in her life as a teacher, as an academy coach, She's worked around the world. She spent time in Canada. She worked for the Vancouver Whitecaps. She's also been a head coach at FC Norseland. Anya is without doubt one of the reasons why we started this podcast in the first place. Going to come straight down the middle of the plate with her experience and insight and talk to you exactly what it's like to have a career working in the game. Anya's been in football for almost 20 years. Today, she's with us on the Pro Player Podcast. Welcome, Anya. We're delighted to have you. Thank you for inviting me. I, I really want to get started with uh, a 20, year, 20 years in women's football. Has, what a 20 years it's been. How, how, how much it's changed, how much you must have seen, how it's different now to what it was. I think there's a lot of people going to tune into this episode Anya they're going to see you on here and they're going to be thinking to themselves there's so much they can learn about what it is to coach at the elite female level and I really want to get into all this with you um, I'm super excited about 
your background as a teacher and, and everything you bring to the table in terms of your coaching. I know we're going to talk about coaching practice and, and best-in-class practice. Um, where would you like to start? How would you like to kick us off? I think when you, first of all, when you say I've been coaching for 20 years, I, I maybe sound very old, but uh, and I'm, I'm, I probably am, but I'm 45 years <laughs> old. And you said just uh, before that massive changes has happened. Um, and I totally agree. I I started playing uh, with boys when I was younger. Um, until I was 15, I hadn't seen any girls around me or in my life that actually played football, uh, sorry, soccer as, as myself. Massive changes has happened in, in the female game, uh, in soccer uh, particularly. I, I started playing when I was six and I played with boys. And until the age of 15, I hadn't met any girls that played uh, at the same level as myself. So just um, coming around in, in the soccer clubs right now and seeing a bunch of girls just playing and enjoying playing is just massive for me. And then, of course, the women's game in general on the highest level as well, um, seeing those huge crowds um, and the supporters um, just loving the game as we have done always. So it, it's, it's amazing to see. It is phenomenal. I feel like about a year ago, I was watching social media and FC Barcelona was breaking the attendance record every week. And, you know, there's just so much. You know, all of a sudden, there's another country with a huge attendance. And then obviously the attendance is going up around the world. But it does feel like that, that it's just such a special time. Can you, can you perhaps, Anya, talk to us a little bit about what soccer is like for young female players in Denmark? Because I, I agree with you, up until very recently, in Wales and the UK, you know, probably wasn't commonplace to see girls out there playing in leagues and, and, and in school soccer and everything else. So what's it like in, in Denmark for a young aspiring female player? So uh, the distances in Denmark, uh, first thing, are not <laughs> as big as they are in the States. So we always have, like, if we don't have a girls team in the city where you live, you will have one very close by. So within... I would say 15 kilometers, you have a girls team. Um, when they grow up and they get into competition uh, level, let's say around 14, 15, we do have um, a national league where they, the best uh, clubs, they play against the other best uh, teams in Denmark and you travel. Um, yeah, it could be one hour, it could be five hours and then you're in the end of, of Denmark actually, so you don't have uh, bigger distances than that. So we have the highest level uh, from the age of uh, 14, 15 years old, and they, they can play nationally in, in Denmark. And that has to be a huge help in terms of the infrastructure and talent identification and scouting and everything else. I think uh, at the moment, I think three weeks ago, I went to a game in Miami for, for a one-off match, and it took me six and a half hours to get there. <laughs> play the game and come back six and a half hours the other way. So I totally yeah. understand where you're coming from in terms of the distance. Um, there's a huge, I don't really want to go through too much into this, but there's a huge debate across North America, especially right now in terms of the youth game and, and where we're going and where the youth national teams uh, are being um, filled up from and the role of college sports and, you know, just gen in general, the youth game and, and how players are being developed here. But, what give us a sense for what is happening on the ground in terms of talent identification and development in Denmark, in Europe, in terms of producing the best female players and nurturing that talent? Because you've obviously seen it from both sides. 
Yeah. So, um, so the Danish FA, we support that the players stay in their local club as, as long as they can get challenged at that level uh, where they are. Um, if they get better, they usually come into clubs that are licensed from the Danish FA. So every club um, every year do an application where they send in all like all the things they have, the structure, coaches and all that stuff. And they get an evaluation from the Danish FA that would put them into um, specific uh, leagues that would um, be the, the league where they where they need to play for the next year. And those uh, clubs um, are right now the best talent environments to come to for these players. And those clubs are the ones um, that we as national team coaches are visiting um, twice a year. We come out, I was just uh, visiting a club yesterday and last week. So we come out, we talk to the coaches, we see their practice. We are talking about development plans for the players and, and all these things. And now we just talked about um, distances uh, before. I think that's one of the, the really good things about being a smaller country that we can connect closer to those clubs and we have fewer clubs to, to cooperate with, which makes that bond closer um, for us, which is best and better for the players as well. It, it's absolutely correct what you're saying there in terms of the scale and scope of the country and the size geographically. You know, with 50 different states here in America, each one could be their own country in their own right in a lot of ways. I think someone told me once that um, the entire size of Great Britain fits 12 times into Texas alone. So I, I do understand the logistical argument and the, you know, what you're saying there. But but governance is so important, isn't it? Governance, you know, charter standards, oversight and ensuring quality through, you know, whether it's club visits or, or a network of, of leagues and just having that feedback loop, knowing that people are working at a level that's important, having national team coaches, like you said, on the ground watching sessions. Um, you know, it is so important, isn't it? Govern at the end of the day, this does come down to governance, doesn't it? It, it does, certainly. And we uh, we just, in this past weekend, we had all the head of coaching um, from all the clubs. They came in for a weekend and uh, watching the, our, our under-16 national team play Germany so they could see what is the level we need to develop our players into. And they were talking about what is the need um, for us in Denmark? Where do we have these things we need to work on to be at our highest level? Um, so again, distances as a close network with the coaches and uh, the leaders in the clubs to um, to improve the development for the players. That's uh, that's one of the key things in Danish uh, development programs. I think that's those close connections. Anya, I want to get I want to get into this straight away with you because I am fascinated to hear your insight. I want to talk about a young Danish player who is playing for their club, maybe being watched by you, you know, what is, what should their relationship with risk be? What should their relationship with failure be like? How do you, what is your advice to coaches, aspiring coaches, young players listening, who may not push themselves beyond those technical ranges that they know they can you know they can be a six out of ten or a seven out of ten and they're going to be okay but they're never going to set the world alight you know 
we have well, you know we have to push them outside of those parameters for them to achieve their potential what advice do you give to aspiring coaches and young players in terms of what relationship they should have with failure and with risk oh i think especially with girls who really wants to do well and do things correctly we really need to break down that fear of failure um we want them to have an environment that is safe where they can um, grow in making mistakes, being brave on the ball and making sure that they focus on how they can improve, but still be brave on the ball. So um, I think that's really important and it is for the young, inspiring um, talent. Um, but it's also on the national teams. We really want to make sure that we improve so we don't talk about what went wrong, but how can we improve to do better even next time? And we are very open about it. So it's okay to talk about the situations that didn't work well, to put words on that, and it's out in the air. So that's, uh, that's really important to create that environment, um, brave environment, and making a difference when you get the chance what a, what a fantastic way to put it, put words on it, to actually bring that into the open. And every, what you're saying is simplistic in one sense, but behind that is so much nuance and knowledge and education understanding that you're basically bringing about a moment for a young player, whereas they would feel at their worst and most vulnerable, you are making it relative, relatable, safe and encouraging them for them to feel that way again that has to be the magic source surely that has to be it certainly i uh, our last camp we had like a situation where we were not doing really well defending the box in on a cross and one of the players uh, she, we saw, watched the video together with the team and i asked how can we improve here how can we do even better and she raised her hand and she said you know I can see if I can do this next time, I think that would improve the whole situation. We wouldn't uh, have this dangerous situation. And I, at, at the same time she was saying that, I was smiling and saying, thank you for being open about this. This makes me have confidence in when you go back in the club, I know you can evaluate your own performance and you can take that situation and you can improve on that. Because if you can't see what went wrong and how you can change that. And if you're not open about it, we cannot change anything. So now I have confidence in you because you can see that you're open about it and then you can change it. And I really want that environment. And it makes me proud for players to know that they get evaluated for their um, performance, but they show that that they can improve on their own. So, um, so that's good for my env environment that they, they do that. But it also, um, it, it actually makes me see that player at a higher level because I have confidence in their development moving forward. There is a school of thought that we as coaches, the industry, we rob the players of this, I call it the power of speculation, that we take it away from them. We see... A lot of coaches who are out there, a, a phrase that I've learned over the last few years is joysticking. And it takes me back to my early days where you literally had a computer with a joystick 
and a red button on the top and used to play computer games, right? And and for anyone who hasn't heard it, the essence is exactly that, that a coach can give information to players, young players, before they receive the ball, as they're receiving the ball, after they've had the ball, literally joystick them through a performance, right? And there'll be people out there who say, well, I have to do it because players can't understand any different or I don't have the time to develop that with players. And I feel like this is the biggest crime to, to rob young aspiring players of the power of speculation. And you've just touched on it there. Could you perhaps talk a little bit to people, because with your background and understanding, this is going to be huge. Can you talk a bit to people out there about why it is so important that we go with the former as opposed to the latter there, and we allow players to to speculate and learn and still achieve, but but ultimately give them the space to do this? Yeah, well, um, soccer is a complex game. There are so many different situations all the time. Um, so you have to make decisions all the time. So when you're given uh, an answer on how to, to, um, to a solution, then you don't see all the other options and you don't have any experience afterwards because you what you learned was to listen and do what you were told. So you don't train the eye to actually observe what is happening and making a decision. So it would be fantastic, fantastic if coaches could be more curious on the players on what did you see and you made this decision. So why was that? Just tell me, well, maybe they didn't see the other option at all. So what they chose was two from two options and the option they actually chose was the best one. So actually they did well on what they saw. So maybe the coach finds out, okay, um, preparing before getting the ball, that's actually the main focus here because she didn't see more than these two options. So I think curious, curious is, curiosity is the most important things on the decisions the player makes. Um, yeah. Fantastic again, curiosity, and and they, I don't know if I don't know how big Ted Lasso is in Denmark. I don't know whether you've seen the show or whether it's come out. Yeah, it has. Yeah, I mean it's absolutely changed the world here in America, and I think it's made its way across the Europe and Britain. But there's a famous um, Ted Lasso scene where he talks about curiosity, and he's playing darts with with the, the former owner of the club he's managing, and he basically goes into this speech about. If people would have been more curious, I encourage everybody in the world to go and search that clip out on YouTube because it it is a game changer. Yeah, I, I think. Do we need then? Thought about this for a while. Do we need a different term for people who are in a coaching role but aren't actually taking heed of the things you're saying here? Because would it be fair to say that they are not coaches? because they are not coaching. And we had um, Kevin Murphy on, who was the recruitment lead at Arsenal Women early on in the series. And Kev talked about his transition from just putting on sessions uh, to when he actually became a coach in his own mind. And he was talking about the interventions and changing of behaviour and, and scaffolding future behaviour and performance through actual coaching intervention. And sometimes that's not doing anything. Sometimes that's formally doing things. Sometimes it's much more subtle. Am I going, you know, am I going too far with this? Do we need to be calling people who are stood up there watching the ball be kicked around something else? Uh, or, or, or am I being a little bit mischievous there? 
Mm, no, I, I think it's when you're a coach, um, you need to add your, ask yourself the question of why are you a coach? So what do you want to achieve? So if you want like short-term results, um, maybe you shouldn't be into uh, youth and, and kids peewee programs because that's, that's not where results are the most important things. That's development. Um, so if you want results and you want them on short term, I'm pretty sure it, you probably get the results um, sooner when you instruct the players, but not on long term because you can't instruct the player that's on the far side and you can't instruct all the time. So long term development, that's about um, coaching for sure. So I think if you as a coach want results on like long term or when, when you instruct the players, you tell them what to do, you can probably have results on, sh on short term basis, but you won't have the players develop uh, on their own. So you shouldn't be into to kids soccer or um, youth soccer. You should, you should probably be coaching uh, an adult team. So developing players we need to work on long term so make sure you actually are the coach so you help the players to develop i think that's most important and you just talked just briefly about um when you're a real coach you probably don't just put up the drill and say play then you're just a facilitator so when you start coaching that's when you help the players to to be better and you tell them what to work on, what's this drill about? So that's there's a difference between the instructor telling them what to do, um, the facilitator just to put up the drill and then let them explore. And then the coach is actually helping the players to develop. And that's long-term if you ask me. I couldn't agree more. I promised when I started this whole project that I would speak authentically and honestly. And in my experience, and this isn't everyone of course, but in my experience, there are people who are coaching in that fashion who quite honestly are doing it because they have a job and they get paid and that's what they do. And if they went into the professional game or they went into the adult game, they wouldn't have a job. So they do it in the UK. And I think it's something that needs to be said. It needs to be something that young players are aware of. It needs to be something that parents are aware of. It needs to be something that, you know, is talked about. But ultimately, it's, it's your choice and it's the development of the individual at the end of the day. So, that you know that is what's happening and and i'm yet to see an example of that philosophy working out as you say in the long term i'm yet to see somebody win a national title or get to the final four or whatever it might be they have to do by doing it that way and i'm yet to see you know youth teams be super successful over periods of time i.e producing players who can then go on and play at youth national team level or play at the highest level of college and then you know, at some point, these players who've been in these systems, they hit a wall. They hit they hit a brick wall. And the coaches who've been responsible for sitting there and doing that, they just wash their hands of it and go, well, I did my bit, you know. And, and I don't know that, well, I don't want the next generation of aspiring coaches or people within the game to accept that. And if they want to come on here and challenge me on that, by all means, come on and let's have a balanced debate about it. But I, I definitely agree with you on that one. Yeah, I, I still think it's important to say, of course, every time you walk on that pitch, you walk in there to win the game. Of course, we want results. We want to win the game, but it's the, the process getting there um, 
that we need to agree on when we talk about development in, in kids and youth soccer? So from your point of view as a, as a U19 youth national team coach now, you, you've seen a lot of talented players. You've seen a lot of players who, you know, physically are, are superior or great athletes, perhaps. Um, you know, we all know the players who you can see the, we call it the screaming talent, don't we? The talent that's right in front of your eyes that anyone could see. Anyone can see who's factor A or B in terms of straight up velocity from one point to another. The game obviously dictates a, a myriad of different things, like you said earlier. You can't just run a straight line, but it's the whispering talent. That is the concept that I want to share with people and I want to know about and how you see the whispering talent of potential. What do you see in a player at 16, 17, 18 that makes you think, well, if they just have this and I sprinkle a little bit of that, that they will become in the conversation to be a professional player in their early 20s. And then who knows? Because nobody nobody can guarantee that they're going to turn someone into a professional or they're going to be a professional, can they? So what about that whispering talent? I think um, to discover that whispering talent, you need to uh, look into take away like the physical part um, because that could be really different when you we talk about uh, youth games. Um, look into their uh, mentality to see are they brave and when they face adversity or uh, mistakes in the game, how do they cope with that? Do, do they still try afterwards? Um, do they still um, communicate with their, um, their teammates? Um, how do they um, stay in the game when things are tough? Because if they get down and they get up again uh, when they play, you know when they go to training as well, they will still, no matter how bad or good the coach is, how good or bad the uh, teammates are, and the environment, they will still try their best. So you can have confidence that this player, maybe they'll not take the direct and straight path as some of the more talented players at the moment, but they'll work their through their way up there and they will be at their very best. So some of the very talented players, they probably, some of them maybe never really had to face really troubling things like in the games, because they were just better than the others. So we actually don't know how they react when they come into harder times. I, I think there's coaches out there right now listening all around who will who will resonate with what you've said there. And they know players who have had it, not had it easy, but they've ultimately never been tested in that way. And I think the academies in Europe and Britain on the women's and the men's side, I think they do a better job nowadays of, you know, it's almost like mini loans, isn't it? You hear a lot of, cross-departmental work, cross-age group work, where the best U15 player goes to play with the the U13s and they have to be the best player on the pitch. Or they go and play with the U17s and they have to have a five-minute role where they, they're struggling. And, and they get all these experiences as opposed to just thinking that, well, if I'm the best player in my age group and I go 15, 16, 17, 18, it'll just be a linear line like that. You, that's what you're saying. The more experiences yeah. you get, the more you deal with adversity, the, the more you are prepared and ready when it comes to international football, in your case, or professional football, yeah? Yeah, but of course, we also, it's not like adversity all the time would just produce the best player. They have to feel good as well. So make sure you don't just put them up to play with the higher and the better players all the time. So the, a mix of that would be really good. 
I think a huge difference as well on these two countries are also that Denmark is very small. We have the, the talent mass is so much smaller. So we need to make sure that these players survive in our environments. Um, we can't just pick the second best or the third best for our national teams. We have to keep more players in the game for longer time. So like the dual career and all this stuff is really important for us also to make sure that uh, the pressure is right on the players, not too much, but still we have to push them as well. So that balance is really important. Uh, we need to keep all our players in the game, in the best environments as long as possible. It's fascinating to hear you talk about the fundamental approach. It, that is such an amazing insight. For Denmark to be successful on the world world stage, you have to get the best player, not the second best player or the third best player. And of course, you you lift up the second and third best, you're still providing environments where they can develop. But you have to make that player the best they can be. I, I, I would throw in a question that in bigger markets, in bigger countries, you know, maybe... I would hate or hesitant to say that young players were ever disposable or, or commodities, but if you don't get the number one player right, the number two player is probably going to be just as fast or similar level. So that's probably a different way of thinking. Maybe you have just gone some way to explaining why we have arrived where we have with the game in, in the youth development stages and, and the early professional stages and the college game and the youth game in North America here. Yeah, well, um, what I maybe wasn't that clear, but it's it's very important for us to also um, have the second and the third third best players in the game as long as possible as well. So we want them all of them to be in the game because we don't have that many players. So if any one of those um, get injured or decides not to play anymore. We, we, we can afford to have less players in that good environment. So I think um, maybe in bigger countries with, with a bigger talent mass because of more people, you could probably pick the second best and that second best would probably be almost the same uh, level as the, the first one. If not, it's, that's really high level, right? Yeah. Absolutely agree. Um... Fascinating, absolutely fascinating insight. And again, for aspiring coaches, people working in the industry, you're listening, people working with young players who dream of becoming professional, playing for youth national teams, wherever they are in the world, you know, it's something that has to be considered. You have to look at it. And again, you know, I'm not talking about everybody. I'm not saying that everybody out there coaching is, is getting it wrong or not doing it right. That's not, that's not what we're here for. We're just shining a light on perhaps the extreme ends of the spectrum by talking to youth international coaches like yourself and by talking about perhaps the other end of the spectrum where people are robbing players of the power of speculation, we're trying to have a debate around those parameters. So um, thank you very much again, Annie, for that insight. I'd love to turn the conversation towards the game. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated in talking to you about football. I, I really want to know what it is in the game that you're seeing at the moment, you're excited about, what are the trends within the women's game that you're, you're most on top of? Where is the game going? You know, there's so much happening right now in the, in the game. 
systems, fluidity, strategy, actual soccer now. Can we have a conversation about soccer? Can we talk about those things? Yes, for sure. For sure. Well, the, the women's game is just growing so fast. Um, I think right now what we see is like uh, in the game, the technical level has just rise really quickly. Um, so the ball is uh, longer on each team because we can keep the ball in possession. So the tactical game is volumed up now because we need the ball for longer time to set in our positions, uh, positions and uh, do create the patterns we want to see to to make the space to score goals. So it's been it's getting more and more entertainers to watch and the technical level, the individual level is just really rising and it's, it's amazing to watch. Do you, I think watching the World Cup and looking at the, the technical reports that come out of it and, and speaking to people who were there and just trying to stay on top of, you know, the, the finger on the pulse of where the highest level of the game is going. You know, I think we're about to see a shift in the Champions League, in the Premier League, in the in the FAWSL, or the Barclays Super League, sorry, and the you know the NWSL and the big leagues around Europe. I think we're about to see, for the first time now, the first green shoot of tactical changes, position, dual positions, people playing in inside channels or rotating, and and and, and you know a back four that turns into a back three in possession. I think we are seeing it, but we've seen it in the English Premier League with the men's side for maybe seven or eight years now. I think you've just hit the nail on the head in terms of the ball being kept for longer and how that affects tactical patterns. Would you agree? And are you seeing the same kind of things across Europe in terms of where the game is going on the field? Yes, definitely. And and that's what's making the coaching job even more interesting right now, because now, now it's not about simple things like having a bigger player or one that is really good uh, individually. Now you have to set up the whole team to succeed. I think uh, like it, when you go to the levels under that uh, high performance level, let's say in Denmark, I think we still need to get used to the patience we can have with the ball because it's we have been rushed for many years because we didn't know for how long we could keep the ball in possession. So while when we got up there, we could see the goal. We really went to the goal really quick and we don't have to do that anymore. So now the tactics can come in and the game can be even more exciting to watch and to coach definitely as well. So you're, you're talking here a lot about controlling the tempo of a match, how midfielders' decisions and their movement will affect uh, the framework for, for everything that you do with, in possession. And I think if you look at England, Denmark in the World Cup, for example, um, certainly up until, uh, unfortunately, Kira, Kira Walsh got injured, I think we saw that in terms of a retreating defence on the Danish side, or, or, or certainly not a, a full-on press, if you like. England dominating the build-up in terms of the tempo. And it, I remember watching Fernanda Harder there. She had kind of a a centre-forward role, but she was dropping into the midfield and no one really could get gripped with that triangle of players, the two centre-backs and, and Kira Walsh. And it, yes, of course, hit England on the break. I understand the, you know, the understanding of it, but there was that control on the English side that probably wasn't quite there on the Danish side at that time. You've alluded to it there. Is that what you think we'll see from nations like Denmark going forward, perhaps over the next couple of cycles and 
And is that control of a of a soccer match going to be as in, you know is it is it that important now? It feels like it is. It definitely is for Denmark, and the style of play in Denmark is like controlling the game um, with the ball. And uh, for doing that, you need to be able to have these rotations uh, in the team, also within the game, just to make sure that you get through the areas where, where you have more space or you have overload. And so this is really important. And again, now we have the level to actually do it because we're so much better on the ball now. Um, and also the players, the individual players that I can actually um, dribble the opponent because I think for a long time, the defending player has had uh, the power because it was easier for them to defend than it is to beat a player. That is around, it, that's about to switch, not on all positions, but we're getting there. And then this will get really exciting. It's such fantastic insight, Anya, about you know, when you break it down, that's, that's genius what you're saying. It, 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 it has always been easier to break something up and take a ball off someone 1v1 than it has been to, to beat someone or combine. And, and when you lace it with the, you know, the talk of rotation and everything that has to be done to create space and overload, this is really what aspiring coaches, people working in the game, this is the, this is the real talk. This is the real, like, how we develop and how we go forward. Can you give us some insight, perhaps, for, for aspiring coaches out there, people who are interested? How do you go about creating these environments on the training pitch? How do you go about bringing these objectives to the fore? How do you, how do you teach? How do you coach? What are your sessions like? You know, and, and is that changing? Has that changed in recent times? Because I think everybody now is, with the onset of social media, we can see more so than ever before. We can see first teams training, professional teams training, and we can take exercises and, and things. And we, we've seen a lot now at this stage. What is it like for you? How do you go about that planning process? And, and, and what's important in that for you? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's a specific situation I'm in because we have the players every month or within like two months uh, separated uh, these camps. So when they come in, we have them for seven to nine days. And in that time, we will play two or three games. So our sessions leading up to the games, we have to think about load and all these things as well. So what we really try to do to get the players to learn as much as possible is to um, teach on different levels, saying that when they come in, we have kind of like a U19 or Danish FA curriculum that we want them to know about. So if we are working on the build-up, we'll have at the U19 team, we'll have like a couple of pages they need to read before they come in so they can switch from their club and their style of play into the Danish uh, style of play for the national teams. So they read something when they came in just to make sure we're on the same page. Then we have video for from the last games and sessions on specific the topics that we're working on. So they'll watch that before we, we go out on the field. They'll read in our system, what are we training uh, today? That's the build-up. Okay, we're looking into finding uh, number six in, in the front pocket to receive the ball um, and face the right direction. If let's say that's the, that's the topic of the game. And then recording again the, um, the session and watching the session afterwards, talking to the players about how did we do? And so we evaluate afterwards. So it's kind of these 
things in preparing and evaluation uh, often. Um, on the field, it would be um, to have these stops at the right time out there to make sure that they see here we're doing really well, here we could, what could we do even better? So they come in and they add in their answers to, uh, to the sessions as well. So yeah, that, that's, that's how we do it. So nothing is coincidence. When we go out, we make sure we have a lot of repetition, repetition on the specific topic we're working on. How about, how about an actual practice? So let's say you've got a, let's say you've got a 66 possession practice with two players overload who play for both teams. I think everybody listening will understand that kind of framework, that kind of session. But once you've done that and seen that, where, where do you go next? Is, is it a question of, I'm still, I ask everybody, like, we, we, what is new? Like, it, do we need new? Do we have to engage with new practices and new ways of teaching? Or is it a question of um, not rehashing the old, but does the old work? Is, the, is this something in the last five or six, seven, eight years that you've seen you go, oh, I've never done that before, or I've never seen that before? Or is it more, actually, at this point in your career, you've seen pretty much everything. You now have a really good understanding of everything. That's why you can make it genius and make it simple, because you understand it so well. Where are we on this? Yeah, well, I think you said the word simple. Like I also said, foot soccer is complex, um, but we need to make it simple. So let's say in 11 v 11 in the end of the session we want to see like a build up with three players and we want two players in front of those um trying to build up against um a pressing team with two forwards let's say let's say that um this situation we want to um make that clear from the beginning of the session so after they warmed up like just a basic warm-up we'll take a little part of that let's say like the uh, center back needs to receive the ball and open up so she can see the wing back and the center uh, player in there. We will work on that in our soccer warm-up part. So receiving that ball in that positioning uh, and opening up. So that's this one specific player. She will warm up doing exact, exactly that movement. And then we'll progress into, let's say, uh, a build-up um, six versus four. On that specific uh, part of the field, we'll have a lot of repetition on that. And then we'll build that into the bigger game. So we try to start in the big game and then do it in smaller parts going through. So that's probably not new, but we really need to make sure that we only coach on what we want to, to have them to progress on. I love what you're talking about here. It's a concept that I came across early on in my career as a coach educator the concept of pitch geography. So I don't know how to say that best around the world, but ultimately, if in your example you described there, the left centre-back is going to receive the ball from a goal kick or whatever, that they are actually inside the box these days or five yards outside the box. And the parameters they're working with is the width of the field to the sideline and the, the angles and the distances of everything they're doing is relevant to what they're actually going to face in a match and how that then has a huge impact for transfer of learning. That's yes. kind of what you're getting towards there, isn't it? Can you can you talk a bit more about why, if you don't get these parameters right in the warm-up or in the session planning part, why that has such an effect in terms of ultimate outcome? Because that's what it is, isn't it? The most successful coaches in the world aid the transfer of learning from training to a game, don't they? 
Yes, we definitely wanna, we want, it, it, this is sometimes hard. We want them to succeed in what they're doing, but we also mm -hmm. want it to be game-like. So we can do that movement, but if there's no pressure on, then we'll have a lot of successive actions, but it won't look like the, the final game. So that balance is hard and it's really hard when you plan the session and you go out. So what you need, really need to work on is when you go out, if, it, if it's too hard, then you need to take some of the game-like situations maybe a little way so they succeed. But as long as they succeed, please just volume up on uh, the pressure, the intensity and the pressure, and all these things. So it's you have this transfer as you, you were talking about. But And that's coaching. That's where you're not just doing a drill. That's the coaching part. Genius. It's absolute genius because it's simple to say, but it's so hard to do, isn't it? It takes so long to, to get your craft. And, and, and that's why I think the people out there now who are, when we started this, we wanted to offer strength and support to people who wanted a dream to be where you are and you know, do the things you've done. And maybe they can't see it. It's a long way away. But wherever they are, whatever, they, whatever they're coaching right now, whatever they're actively out working and developing, they can be working on the things you've just said. They can be working on coaching versus just facilitating. And sometimes it's not as simple as saying, well, okay, now we throw two players into defend instead of one. Maybe it's about turn. I love your idea of turning the volume up and down. Can you tell us a bit more about what that practically means, turning the, the volume up and down? Yeah, well, um, sometimes you could just say that the attacking player can go full speed or they start really close to the player. Maybe you drag them down a little so they'll be a little later uh, putting pressure on. So that's that's around volume up and down. Um, could be more or less players. It could be bigger space or less space. It's It's about all these different things that you can actually make it easier or harder. And when you make it harder, it should be more game-like, but you also want to succeed again. So that's the diff that's the really difficult part. I know you've just given me such a great idea. I'm gonna I'm gonna coach a session in the future where I talk to the players about right, we're gonna turn the volume up, and I'm gonna use the speakers and actually turn some volume some music up, and I'm gonna have an environment where it, it it just the two coincide together. It's a fantastic idea. I love it. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is really what it is, Anya. This is what it is. Like, this is why there's no excuse. Of, sorry, there's no substitute for hours on the pitch, is there? There's no, there's no, yes, your badges are super important. We've all been on that journey. People are going on that journey. Can't say enough how important your badges are and the mentoring is. But there's no substitute for being out there for years and years on end, coaching, 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 learning on the job. I don't think you get to the level of expert understanding that you are at now unless you've made those mistakes, learned those lessons. And you just get a feel, don't you? A sense for, I just need to sprinkle a bit here. Or I just need to change that. That, I think, when an aspiring coach becomes a, an elite coach or an expert coach. Would you agree? Certainly. And, you know, we're all learning every, every time we're out there, especially if we evaluate our sessions, if we ask um, the important questions. So did we see a lot of the things we wanted to practice on? Did we put up a drill or a game where we actually had a lot of those situations? Um, and did the players uh, use the different options we were actually training? Or if they, if they didn't, how can we change the game and the session so they actually get more of those things? 
Um, and it's, it's, we do that every time after a session at the national team camp, we do that and we can change things all the time, all the time. And we, we can, we're lucky. We can use more time on planning the session. It, it takes a lot of work and, but, but also we get so happy when we see that player or those, that team succeeding in these things. I want to touch on that real quick. I, I, I was an average player once described as running with my handbrake on my parking brake, right? That tells you everything you need to know about me, but the feeling of playing is one thing. The feeling of scoring goals and, and, and loving playing is one thing. As a coach, when you invest and work on something, a pattern of play or a particular team of work or whatever it is you work on, when you see that happen in real life, in a stadium, in front of a crowd, when you see the look on the player's face, is there, there's a kind of knowing exchange between you and the player, isn't it? They never quite talk about it. You never quite talk about it, but you both know that you both know intuitively this is what happened here and the work was worth it. And you might never speak about it, but there's this moment and you're, you're lighting up there as I talk to you about this. Can you, can you tell us about this moment? Because I think that's what coaches need to hang on to and remember when times are tough and when it's hard and why we do what we do. Can you talk to us about that moment and that exchange perhaps? Yeah, certainly. Just in general, when when the players succeed on the field, and that could be scoring goals or it could be doing this uh, feint and then suddenly it works and they get through, you're just a mirror of their feelings. Certainly, you feel the same thing as, as they do. And um, that's that's worth it. I don't you, I don't think you understand that when you're a player, but we really feel that. So when they're struggling, we're struggling as well. So if they don't understand something, that's my problem as well. So I I can't just um, replicate what I just said or what we did. I need to find another way to open this up. Um, yeah. Anya, we are a mirror of their feelings. Like if I take if people take nothing else away from this, which would be impossible because of every, all the insight you've given, we are a mirror on their feelings. Absolute genius, and I hope that more people coming up through the game into the women's game who aspire to be coaching young female players in the future can take that as a phrase, print it on a T-shirt. I'd love to be somewhere one day and see that on the back of a T-shirt somewhere. But I, it's the collective empathy that you're talking about, isn't it? It's the collective understanding and i think and i've talked to a lot of people on the podcast now who you know professional players who will tell you that if you have this back and forth with a coach if you have this engagement if you know that they're in it with you you ultimately get better results in the and the outcome with professional players but also the youth development process is going to be more successful as well why don't people why doesn't everybody do this then is the question i ask we know that this works we know that this is how to foster relationship and engagement and we know it's better for young female players to be in this environment. Why doesn't everybody do it then? Yeah, it's tough. I can also say, so the two of us can be very wise talking about the um, the best way to do it. And when I go into a game, I have a philosophy of how I want to coach, how I want to help the team. But I will also say I can also get carried away by the game and forget about all the things I wanted before I went into the game. So this is tough. It is really tough. So you need to think about how you can help the players the best and how, um, yeah, to let them play the game, to make them uh, 
be their own joystick, like you said earlier in this podcast as well. Um, but it, it is tough, um, but we need to figure out why we are there. And that would be the main question on how you, you should carry on in the game. Again, great insight. I think in my 20s, I think I was always there for them. But I think in my 20s, I was, I was also there for me. Yeah. In my 30s, late 20s, I started to realize that I'm there for them. And now as I enter my 40s, I, I understand it. And, and if we can help an aspiring coach, it doesn't matter how old you are, but if we can help an aspiring coach to get to that point where they question and, and understand where they are on that like it scale there that you've just mentioned, I think we've done them a service. And by extension, what what advice would you give to a young Anya Heine Muller now, looking back? What if you could write a letter to yourself, what would be in it? What would you tell yourself looking back now over those 20 years? And would you want to change much of what you did and how you were at that time? Because that's obviously had a part in playing who you are. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I would have said, please continue in this game because this is going to be huge and it will get all the good things that you were hoping for. So, And luckily I did, and that's why I'm here today. So my the lucky thing was that even though I had to choose jobs where um, because I wanted to be like a mom as well and having a family. Um, I still kept jobs that I was in the sport. So I always, I was still coaching. I was not doing full-time coaching jobs, but I was still doing my education and my license and all this stuff. So I kept my name in the game and I kept growing just again, volume down on that and volume up on something else in my life. Um, but keeping yourself in the game and making sure when I stopped playing, I transitioned right into coaching afterwards. I think it's important that we don't, um, that we that we catch these players when they stop playing and keep them in the game somehow, coaching, um, team managers, or whatever we can do. Um, I think that's really important. So for me to be in the game now, is definitely because I kept to be in soccer or in elite athlete sports in my jobs or in my spare or free time. That's why I had the option to come back after now we have two girls, um, 14 and 16 years old. And I chose to spend more time in like family when they were younger. And now I can go in full time again and coach at this level. And um, since I've done that, so much happened. <laughs> um, so things are just even greater now and opportunities are huger and all this stuff. Uh, what, and what a wonderful, again, sentiment in terms of, we were talking earlier about volume up, volume down in terms of like coaching practice. Now we're talking, you know, philosophy terms of volume up, volume down on the elite level of, in, you know, of interaction in the game in your life. And, isn't that a much better way for aspiring coaches to talk about the game than switching it on and off? It might be a tiny little difference, but I love the idea behind what you're saying there. And and it must be a struggle. It must be really hard. It must be hard to be away from the game. It must be hard to to struggle, at, you know, managing that ambition and that and that. But 
it's so important, isn't it, to be there during those years for your daughters and in in life in general. And maybe maybe just talk to us a little bit about that. It must be really difficult to to manage both and and really rewarding as well, of course. I think uh, if you want to be in this game for long term, you need to, it's the same thing about the players. We need to make sure they have dual careers. They have school, they're athletes, and they have their students. We have like our professional lives, but also our private lives. And if I just keep as a human being to focus on my career at some time, if if that volume up and down isn't right, I won't be in the game for long term. I will, instead of just um, taking a smaller job in soccer, I'll just quit soccer. And that, that won't make it easy for me to come back. So um, I think it's important to recognize that our lives are in periods. So some periods are, some things are more important than others, but stay in the game stay in the game that's the most important thing there's so many people will listen to this in the coming weeks months years who need to hear that i need to hear that i appreciate what you've said there uh there's a famous country singer that i've come to love in the in the states got into my country music right i'm a boy from abitrida in south wales but i've got into my country music his name is luke Boob, and he has a song and one of the lines in the song is that Basically, he's saying, I'll take you with me. And he's talking to his young son or daughter, metaphorically speaking, every chance he gets because he's on the road so much and because he's this high performance career. And he just, the song is all about, I'll take you with me. And every time I hear it, it gets me right there. I think about like those moments that are so fleeting, that are so quick to pass. And as your children get older, you, you, you kind of realize looking back how valuable and important that time was just such a great way to look at life and i'm so glad in 2023 that we are able to have a conversation like this and still remain you know ambitious and, and high performing high achieving whereas maybe in the 90s and the 2000s it was i've got to be in the office all the time my family life has to suffer i can't do any of that i can't have a life and you know and, and each their own everybody gets to choose their own path but we must be in a better place now. If you are coming into this industry and you want to be in this industry, people should listen to people like you talking in the way you are and take strength from that and try and do that from the start, perhaps, as opposed to looking back 20 years down the line at the mistakes you might have made and the times you can't get back. Would you agree? Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm not saying that this is the right decision for everyone. Some people, like, their their work is their life, and it is for me as well, but I can still look back and say, I spent the time with the family while the girls were just still choosing their parents as their priority. And now they're getting their own lives and that's great. So now I can again uh, choose my life again. Um, 14, and, 14 and 16, you said, yeah? That must yes. be interesting. That, yeah. that must be, people will think because you're an elite coach and because you have you know all this background in education that it's an easy thing for you and you, and you can just walk through this parenting idea, but that's not the case, is it? <laughs> uh, they're 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 doing good and uh i'm i'm still living and we're uh, having a great time so i really enjoy all the time i've spent and i'm still spending but i just wanted to add like when the girls were were younger i was coaching their team right so can you learn something from that oh my god yes you can that's the toughest part to coach 
these young players. So how to explain things to do short messages, you know, that there's a whole world of learning coaching kids there, there you find the real coaches. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. You, you waffle and lose that attention span. It doesn't matter what you're saying or what you're doing. It's all about those are the lessons, as you say, you can learn wherever you are. We're very big on this podcast about wherever you are, work where your feet are at. Yes, aspire to be the Danish under 19th manager in time. Yes, aspire to be, you know, whatever you want to be. But wherever you are, you can be working on these things, can't you? You can be developing and getting better. Definitely. And well, just a short, uh, funny story. I was coaching uh, six year olds. And we were having like cone goals. So two cones were a goal. And I told two players to, to, to wait down behind the goal. And I was thinking about the two cones. And then I was calling their names and I couldn't find them. I found them like 100 meters down <laughs> sitting behind an 11 aside goal. They just, they did exactly what I said. And I was like, uh, oh my God. <laughs> what a lesson. What a lesson. They'll take you, they'll take you so practically. Uh, it's absolute. It, it, it's a great way to look at it. it. It you're giving aspiring coaches out there the grace to learn, the time to learn, and it it's a phenomenal message. And it it's bedded in real life. You are doing this right now. You are leading the 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 youth national teams under 19 level at the Danish FA. You are in the game doing it. And you, what your insight and experience is going to do for other people is give them the grace and the ability to. To, to learn and to be patient with themselves and perhaps not be so uh, hard on themselves at times, especially when times are tough. But to wrap up this this kind of section on the on the parenting of the coaching young people, the best way I've ever heard it described, and I love this, I want to share this with people, is as a parent, you, you never win, but you sometimes draw. You mostly lose, but in, in essence, you just get up to play again. And that's the challenge. You just get up every day to play again. And that, that helped me in my life, and I hope it helps um, some people out there as well. That's an amazing sentence. Yeah. Okay. We, we talk football. We talk philosophy. Like this is brilliant. This is one of the best episodes. I. I don't even know where to go next. Like, <laughs> I'm ex I'm excited. I need to compose myself, man. I need to compose myself. I'm excited. Um, but again, David, if you're if you're like this as a coach, you're an you're an amazing coach. You'll be thrilled oh, yeah. when they do well. Yeah. They can see yeah. that all those yeah. emotions because yeah. you're giving that back to me. They, that's that. If I've had any success in my career, and yeah, and when players played for me, they'll say that they'll say, and I didn't. I've always been. Maybe we need to talk about authenticity because I've always been able to be authentic. I came from a, a place where you, you, know, you didn't talk about yourself, you let other people decide if you're any good, but you just got on with the work. And maybe that's the conversation we do have. People need to hear that. Let's do that. Let's do that. Anya, this last, this last hour is exactly why we wanted to do this podcast and exactly what you know, we wanted people to hear about the future of coaching within the women's game and, and just the future of coaching everywhere. You know, this is exactly what it should be. And I'd, I'd like to wrap up really by talking about authenticity. And as I sit here with you today, and we've done this with a couple of guests, you get a sense for some people that they are just living 
in their own skin, in their own strength, in their own journey. You are that person. You have that strength. Undoubtedly, you have the knowledge. You sit with a pro license. You sit with all this experience from coaching around the world and, and being in, a, in, the, in the education system and everything else you've done. But you also have more than that. You also have that sense of authenticity. Some people struggle so much to connect with that authenticity and, and they, 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 they don't allow themselves to be vulnerable. And I think players then pick up on that and, and, and student athletes pick up on that. And can you talk to us a little bit about that and, and maybe share some of your insight around that? I think um, if you want to um, make the players improve and develop, you need to bond with them and when you talk to them, when you try to educate and all this stuff. For them to open up, I need to open up as well. So I have to give them something of me. If I do that, I'm pretty sure I'll get more from them as well. Um, so that is really important for me, but it's also um, natural for me because I'm a really bad actor. If there's something I don't like or something I really like, I get really enthusiastic. <laughs> like it's, it's, you can see that right away. So um, I can never sell you something that's not good because I would never make it. So that's not my job for sure. I, um, I'm laughing because people have said that about me my whole life. And I, I just, people have actually told me like, oh, you need to calm down now. You need, you need to like be more professional. When I, when I joined the FA, I certainly wasn't an FA man in that respect. Um, no disrespect to anybody there or anything, but I was just, I was me. And I feel like I draw strength from that. I feel like you draw strength from that. And by, by no means are we saying that everybody has to, has to be like us. But that authentic piece frees you. It frees you to give, I think, the best of the gift that you have. Yes, you apply your training. Yes, you apply your experience. Yes, you apply every TED talk you've ever listened to and everything a mentor has said to you. Isn't this the magic of what we do, that all of that comes together in your everyday production and every day of the, of the, of the work that you do? And, and is, is it as simple as saying that we are an amalgamation of all those things? Definitely. And I think when I, when I enjoy things most on the field, that's where you, when you really get close to the players and again, what they feel you feel, so and the opposite way around so getting close to those and the game that's like uh, what you get back from being a coach certainly i i hear the premier league manager once describe and this was a game changer for me because i didn't really think of it in these terms before but i heard a premier league manager once describe all the work all the training all the pre-season and he basically said that six times a year the team go out and play the game plan exactly as it's supposed to be played and everything's great and it's, and it's close to perfect as you can find. But they play, what, 38 games in the league, another 10 in the Cups, like whatever. So we're really talking about a fifth of the time, actual execution being what the work was for. That opened my eyes a little bit. But when I think about the sessions that I coach and practice the same for you, there have been times where you just feel like you're in the flow. You feel like this is going well or 
or the players are really reacting well. What what does it feel like? What does it look like when you are in the flow, in your practice, in your sessions, actually delivering to players? Do you get a sense of, uh, perhaps it's going well is the wrong term, but I think you get the gist of what I'm trying to say. Do you? What does it look like and feel like when you are at your best in the flow? I think um, the team looks like a team that is taking over, who is like uh, controlling what they want to do and what they see. They're communicating, they're leading each other, they're supporting each other, they're um, talking together when something was misunderstood. When they do that, I know they're taking charge of the game and charge of um, the control of the game. And that's where I feel like then we succeeded because now they're playing, I'm not playing. Do you feel that in session as you're working or is that something you kind of get a sense for during matches or after matches? I think uh, the games, the matches are the exam of what you have been practicing on. So you will see if you manage to do well in the sessions and with the team um, in the games, that's where you really see if you, if you succeeded, if you let them play for sure, for sure. During training, it's a setup, like everything is prepared and we're trying to influence things. So it's mostly in the games, I would say. And in the interest of balance, when it's perhaps not, you know, going so well, or when you have those moments of, you know, you have to sit, sit back and think a bit more, or, or perhaps you, you work a lot now with high performance teams and you work with staff and you work with people. And, and sometimes it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Sometimes you have to have difficult conversations or you have to redirect or you have to, you know, you have to get your point across as a head coach. What advice do you give you know, in terms of balance on the other side, when things perhaps aren't going superbly well, how do you deal with those situations? How does a young aspiring coach, what can they learn to be better in the future about those moments as well? I think it's important to be honest with the team or the player um, and also admit if there was a session where things could have been planned differently or wasn't prepared at the right level or whatever, and to take that responsibility, but also to demand um, high quality from the players as well. Um, the conversations with individual players is really important to handle and not just let go uh, and also to catch up on the players afterwards. So if you had like a difficult conversation with the player, we need to make sure that everything is is fine the days or the, the week after. So yeah, just don't let go because not saying something or not taking that meeting also means something for the players or the team. So that's really important. Again, amazing insight. Don't just do nothing because not taking that decision, not having that discussion also says something. Yes. And I just want, I, I wish I'd known that in my early 20s. I wish I'd known that as I started out my career because sometimes I think we can feel like, oh, well, I'll just leave that. But actually, you're communicating a lot more by leaving something, especially with elite players, I think. Definitely. And that's where you need help from the whole staff group because you have, let's say, 15 or 20 players. 
So we're not perfect. We don't see everything. I can say something, I can turn around, and then maybe someone else can see they didn't get that, or they got that wrong, or the way you said it could have been, that was misunderstood. So you need more staff to watch and to pick up on all these situations so you, you manage the team well, because we're not perfect. So uh, it, is a, it, it is a tough job. And yeah, it takes unbelievable strength foresight and just being able to look inward like you have there to be able to even say what you've just said so many coaches don't even go there but but you are again living in that vulnerable space of i don't have all the answers yes you're an expert absolutely you are but but i find the best people i've seen and worked with they talk like you talk they talk in terms of the collective they talk in terms of the collective expertise and of course they lead the ship of course they steer the ship at the front but um, I don't know anybody who's been super, super successful that doesn't share your mentality of what you just said there. Yeah, and you, you need to acknowledge that you're not good in in all the areas. So there could be players where or a situation where you know you have someone else who can do this better or manage this better. So handling situations could, could also be by including staff members um, to to work on these issues, but again, it's your responsibility that something is done or said, and that you follow up. But use your staff, certainly, if you have like an assistant coach or team manager, whatever. It's it's really important to get more eyes and more actions on it. As we wrap up here, so much in this episode to help and support, and so much so much truth, and again, vulnerability. What what are you, I really want to know what you're excited about for the future in the women's game and for youth players and, and Denmark soccer or whatever it might be. What what excites you now as we look forward into you know mid 2020s? Where are we going and what excites you about the game now? So I'm excited for the players. I'm excited for more and more players getting the chance to play soccer at a higher level in a more professional setup. So not many years ago, it was only like the top level players who could go out in Europe and or in Denmark nationally to play on the, uh, the best teams and get an environment and a setup that was professional. Now we see more players get that chance, getting that chance. And I really, I'm so happy for those players. Also the ones that can go abroad and still like getting another culture and, but still having a professional setup. Um, girls, younger players um, being taken seriously and um, pursuing their dreams with good coaches around them, better coaches around them, so they can enjoy the dream they're having. That's what I'm really happy about. And I, to see more players to get those chances is just uh, really amazing. Anya, I cannot thank you enough for the time, for the level of investment, for the care, and for the expertise and insight that you've shared with us. You you are everything that's right with the game. You're everything that's right with coaching. And I cannot thank you enough for spending this time with us. And I cannot wait to see what you go on and do. And, you know, the people and the players in your care the great things they're going to go on and do as well. From everybody here at the Pro Player Podcast, 
a huge genuine thank you for that. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me.